And uh, yeah, you know, I, I, I've been involved in the online discussion board scene far more than anyone my age should have been. Well, I think this is an interesting way to start today's show. Welcome to the Donating Podcast. My name is Ryan Warner. I'm joined by Dustin Gavrilo here in person. We're in person finally this Sunday, along with Dr. Ellie Shockley joining us via phone. And we're talking about the internet. Particularly, I'd like to talk about in our check-in at least, when you first got the internet. And I'll go, I'll go first because I remember it very well. It was 1995. It was my senior year. It was the beginning of my senior year. And we got a computer that sat in the living room downstairs and uh, Windows 95, obviously. And we had Prodigy, 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 the internet service provider of the time. One of the competitors, AOL, but not, not the big one. Also a great band. True, very true. <laughs> and I wonder if that band was upset that some internet service provider took his name. But my login name was Lawrence of Arabia because I like that movie. And that's, that's, that's the way I picked it. And uh, I was on Usenets. I was, at that point, mostly concerned about following the Celtics, the Boston Celtics basketball. And uh, to me, the internet was this great thing where I could actually f- read the newspapers from other towns. Up until then, I was following basketball through the Bismarck Tribune, which uh, I hope the Bismarck Tribune employees from the 90s aren't listening to this podcast, but it kind of sucked for, for <laughs> NBA basketball news in the 90s. It was terrible. It was just, it was just basically the box score and maybe whatever the AP had it ran for the, for the scores. So it was very, very um, hard to follow the way I wanted to follow it. So this was great. I got to read the Boston Globe and Boston Herald every day. And uh, loved it. I, I couldn't once it once it came. I couldn't imagine uh, uh, the time before. It, it seems so primitive and quaint. And uh, I just happened to be a senior in high school that year, so I, I wrote a big term paper, a research paper on that computer, and it was awesome. And uh, took that computer to college the next year. So that was that's my story. I didn't get radicalized. I was I guess radicalized in Celtics Celtics gossip. That was it. <laughs> Ellie, Dustin, what about you guys? When, when did you guys first get the internet? I first got it in 1992. Ooh. Uh, we were living in Cincinnati, Ohio for, from one of my dad's jobs. And uh, it was on an old uh, Mac classic, the one piece uh, tall with a handle and like a nine or 12 inch screen built in black and white. Um, and we had... CompuServe. That was our first connection system and did all the stuff that you could do on there. Uh, then later, I we, we upgraded to a 486 and uh, at some point had Prodigy. When we lived in South Carolina, uh, had MSN when it was a internet service mm-hmm. uh, before it was an instant messenger service. Um, and that was that was when the, the the first instant messenger system was a very politically incorrect name. If the old timers remember powwow, that was that came even before ICQ. Powwow also was, I believe, the first that had an audio fit feature. 
but it was, you had to know the person. And, and back in those days, if you didn't know somebody from, from school that had a system, you were, you were meeting people on chat rooms and then adding them into your system. So, uh, you know, it, you never know who you were actually talking to, but you could kind of figure it out by what they cared about. You know, if they were talking about, you know, certain TV shows or certain books, either they were your age or they, they were your age in their head. <laughs> so uh, it was a different time completely. And, uh, you know, that all through high school, after school, it was going home, going on chat rooms and downloading illegal music on Napster. <laughs> well, so you came of age in the similar time period of the cypherpunks. Did you run across them, uh, a very kind of anarchist, libertarian leaning uh, ad hoc group of? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And if you go deep enough into Google searching my name, you'll find something that is very embarrassing from my high school years, which is called Fredonia. There was this thing on the Internet in the Usenet groups and everything that was called the Micronation Movement. And. Fredonia was a utopian libertarian society that wanted to buy an island somewhere. <laughs> and it was a constitutional monarchy, but it was libertarian constitutional monarchy. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And, and uh, this guy, the guy that started it was from Texas. I, I've lost touch with all these people. There, there's like the picture that you'll find is literally my senior class <laughs> picture type thing that went into the yearbook. And uh, so his, his name was Prince Philip. I was the prime minister. <laughs> and then we had all this other stuff. He actually went and got silver coins minted. I never did get one. I wish I had because silver was cheap then. So it would have been a good investment. Um <laughs> But uh, yeah, yeah, the online libertarian anarchist uh, scene was very hot and heavy back then. And, and at that time, you know, I was still pursuing the computer science route. So, you know, my goal in life was, you know, until halfway through my first semester in college was, was a computer science degree. Uh, so I was kind of in that wannabe hacker mode of, uh, you know, tapping into FTP servers and figuring out what was on there. <laughs> well, there's Activist. a lot of in those two, those two um, subgroups, mm -hmm. libertarian political junkie types and uh, computer programmers. Well, uh, you know, they're early adopters or, or, you know, people adopting new technologies, people adopting unconventional belief systems. These things are, they can go hand in hand pretty well, I think. Um, so I, I'm not sure if maybe I had internet, we had internet access at home in some limited capacity before 1997, but as far as like my access and use of it, I guess I trace it to 1997-ish uh, when I was 13-ish. Uh, um, and it was mostly AOL-based and I was often spending it um, I would be on horror fiction uh, message boards and was a very embarrassing, awkward teenager, but a, a lot of adults in there were patient with me, some less so. Um, I would like to look up song lyrics and 
go down just weird rabbit holes about things I wanted to learn about, like psychology and sociology and like sort of anthropology of religion and stuff like that. And uh, and then I just like ended up a couple years in like teaching myself some basic HTML and making a bunch of websites for no real reason. Like just here's my personal site. Here's my boyfriend's band website. Here's this other. Yeah, I would just build all these silly websites uh, just for the heck of it. Um, so yeah, that's kind of like my, I guess my introduction to, oh, I was going to say, yeah, in 1997, that's when I started using the internet. I never used Prodigy, but is that is the year I saw Prodigy live in DC. There, there used to be these really wonderful music festivals in DC every spring. And because I was a good kid, uh, at least my mom thought so, I would be on a long leash so I could go as a 13 year old to music festivals in DC without an adult chaperone. I would go with other peers who also had uh more relaxed parents um and yeah so anyways that that was my prodigy in 1997 not a internet server kids nowadays will never know the pain of scripting websites with html in notepad and then dragging it over into geocities or angel fire <laughs> yeah but i i think that it was a really beneficial experience for me in some ways because it helped me understand like what coding was and how it worked and I think that that opens like a part of your brain that's like logic based mm -hmm. I don't know it sharpened my capacity for understanding logic and so it's, it was tedious it was very tedious back then but I think it set me up for successful ways of thinking and doing later in life and why I, ha I had to pick up programming in my current job to an extent um, because you know I've been a researcher for a while but I got to the point where the expectation was I would also query the data myself and so honestly like <laughs> late 90s html studying actually helped me figure out how to do SQL stuff just because I had that kind of um, frame of reference in my mind even though I hadn't used it much since yeah, I, I had uh, taught myself QBasic on the 486 by ripping apart some, some of those little, remember the text-based games where you were like, there was like a drug wars one where, where you were like pretending to sell drugs via text to somebody. It was weird, but I, I had uh, ripped open the coding on it and used that to teach myself how to code QBasic and, and modified the game so that there were easier ways to do it and stuff. Acted. <laughs> wow. Uh, and, and yeah, and then I, I, Visual Basic was the last, uh, last programming language that I had any real uh, uh, involvement in. So SQL is, is way too new for me. Well, hey, Richard. Hey, Norton. Thanks for joining us this, uh, this week. We are switching things up a little bit for this one, uh, especially in the checkout or the check-in time, and talking about our initial experience getting the internet. Would you guys like to share what it was like? First time you got the internet. Um, Norton, go ahead. Okay, well, um, <clears throat> so I graduated from high school in 1984, I'll date myself, um, and, um, you know, at that time, 
you know, quite frankly, still when we were doing um, office, uh, you know, administrative classes, it was still on the typewriter and that kind of thing, the electric typewriter. Um, my first inter uh, my first experience with the internet was in 1990. I was attending the University of Minnesota Crookston, and they were the first wired campus in North Dakota, or, or in Minnesota, excuse me, in Minnesota. Even before they wired the campus, the main campus, they were satelliting, wiring, and passing out laptops, ThinkPads, they were called, IBM ThinkPads, um, in a couple of the satellite, like Wilmer and, and um, University of Minnesota Crookston. So we were wired and it was, it was, it was exciting. It was very exciting. We, we began taking all of our classes online, or in part online in the classroom, but online. Um, it, was, it was interesting, it was wonderful. It was my first experience with um, learning how to navigate the internet and um, learning the World Wide Web. And that was before filters. So, you, um, and before there were a lot of things that like were kind of not healthy on the internet, we're starting to purge into it. Um, so yeah, it was, it, was, it was very interesting. We would take our tests online. Um, so yeah, it was very, um, the University of Minnesota was very advanced at that time. And they were in a lot of magazines and it was the first wired campus. And um, they had set all that up, and and um, so yeah, it was that was my first experience. I had my first laptop that fall, and they handed them out, and of course you were charged for them, um, and then your grants and scholarships or whatever paid for them, and and that kind of thing. But yeah, it was it was it was quite a quite an interesting deal. Um, it's come a long way since then, but but in many ways, um, they were so highly advanced in it that. Um, it was exciting. It was just fun to be a part of it and, and to be a part of that movement and be on a campus that was like the first wired campus in the state of Minnesota and be part of that. So that was my introduction. So Richard, I got to ask, what um, subculture did you kind of, what rabbit hole did you go down once you had access to unlimited, almost? Unlimited? I'm sorry, what's that? What was that? Um, I'm out. What was the uh, the subculture rabbit hole that you jumped into once you had access to? Uh, and, um, you uh, know what? <clears throat> I'm an you know in some ways, <clears throat> excuse me, in some ways I am such a naive person. I I mean I have I have experienced like so much trauma in my life, and I I grew up in a very like wild like uninhibited violent background. But then on the other side of that, I was so naive in many ways. I didn't know how to go down those rabbit holes. I was only focused on learning, focused on um, education, focused on survival, bettering myself, thriving. So I, I didn't do that. I mean, I was asked to be part of, I, I was asked to be part of, um, you know, inclusion in, in cultural sensitive programs and, and be part of documentaries. And I was, I was, someone who was invited to the first um, University of Minnesota uh, student orientation development, like videos and stuff and on the big screen. And it was kind of fun to be able to out myself. And, um, and then, you know, at that time, I was also very involved in um, domestic violence and sexual assault and child abuse prevention and intervention. I didn't I didn't really go down rabbit holes. I didn't know how to do that. 
um, until much later. <laughs> Excuse me. And then I did go down some of those rabbit holes, but yeah, the, in, a, in a much different way. And, and then, and, and it also, you know, I'll be quite frank with you. Um, so um, from that, um, from that time as a gay man, um, you know, we had little places to meet people um, in, in Grand Forks, North Dakota. And we had little places to connect, but the web opened up a plethora of gay.com and, you know, bearforest.com. And, and then came all of those kinds of things into the late nineties and early two thousands that just made it. Yeah. So I, you know, I, that would be the rabbit hole that I would have went down a little bit more as how to, how do you connect with other LGBTQ plus community? Um, and that made it possible because it wasn't really possible before that. Um, and then now today we have, you know, Tinder and Grinder and all the like and whatever, but um, yeah. So I, I know I often think of writing a, a novella about, you know, from, from, from the bookstore to Grinder <laughs> or Tinder you know, what that kind of looks like, because it is a landscape that's very interesting. And, and I'm sure you probably have no interest in it, but it, it is, it is, it is something that is for the LGBTQ plus community. It is um, interesting. Let's just put it that way. Well, thank you for that, Richard. Uh, Jim, thanks for joining us. We're, we're switching things up a little bit, talking about our first experience of getting the internet. And, uh, Norton is up next. Hey, Norton. What'd yeah. You know? Hi. Uh, good morning or good afternoon, rather. Uh, yeah, my internet experience has been all my working life, so I really don't like tech. Um, that's what I was involved in from the time I started my career in 1970-whatever. Um, I'm not going to say when, but anyway, I was involved with a, a company. We worked with Intel. We worked with Microsoft. I was on the Microsoft campus as part of my job. And um, so it was something I didn't even like um, because it was so much a part of my work life. So I really didn't give a shit about it much. Um, and I'd still like to not, but anyway, it's, uh, you know, it, it was interesting watching as you guys are talking about it, the whole um, technology transition, because when I started work, um, of course there was before it was before even computers, and then it became PC. It became the the large IBM mainframe, and then moved into uh, laptop or into PCs, and and ongoing. So I've watched the the whole transition, and it, it's sad because it's never been that wonderful. Because porn actually drove the internet, and um, you know it, it's it, it never was. I don't know, in my mind, I, I kind of was a, even though I was completely immersed in tech, I, I never really liked it that much. It, it, so I, I really, like you guys were talking about all these different rabbit holes, I never went down them. I never cared that much and uh, because it was so much of my work life that I just really didn't, uh, you know, deal with it. Very, I mean, I didn't deal with it in that respect that I used it as a, as a forum for, uh, you know, I guess networking with, with other people. So, 
So it's been an interesting listening to you guys. It's been an interesting transition. You know, it, it's it's so uh, it's so shocking to me because when I started with coding in 1975, 74, uh, well, even 72, it, it, it um, you know, it was a completely um, a, just a huge progressive progression uh, of technology and it, it's it's um, you know it is what it is but it just to me it, it, it's wrong in so many ways because we've become so entrenched in the internet like um, as an example I don't even know what's going on with some of my good people that I'd like to stay in touch with because they do everything on Facebook, and I'm basically off Facebook. So, I mean, there's so many things I'm missing, <laughs> like invitations. Like Waylon had this thing last weekend, I wasn't even aware of it. Waylon, you know, and I'd really like to have seen him again, but I, I just don't. I just don't do it that often, and don't look at it that often, and I don't use message, Messenger, and I, you know, just um, have kind of stayed. Stayed in my own bubble, I guess, but in a way it's kind of limiting, but in a way it's kind of freeing because I don't really care about it that much. Norton reminds me of the Usenet groups that were dedicated to the Luddites. <laughs> that the, the people that spent all their time on the internet talking about how bad the internet was. <laughs> well, it's yeah, it's true. It's probably true because I just... Uh, Looked at it. And, if he would have yeah. been on there, he would have been one of those people. <laughs> yeah, if, if I'd have cared enough to get into a talk group, I probably would have been one of those people. But like, let's let's be real. Facebook really does suck. It is terrible. Like, I mean, there's, you know, I, I was early to embrace the technology that was accessible to me, but I took a almost like a maybe a ten month hi hiatus. Facebook because it's just such an, a rotten platform. So I, you know, I, I understand where Norton's coming from and I only got back on it because I decided to run for local office during a pandemic. So, you know, um, and uh, I'm ambival ambivalent about it all the time because unlike kind of earlier iterations of the internet and social media and whatnot, I just feel like people's expectations have completely shifted to where you know, if you're on that platform, you're supposed to be always available. And that is like really, that expectation is really toxic for some people. And I'm one of those people. Um, yeah. I don't do well with the endless task switching. That is the expectation of the modern era. You know, I take deliberate breaks from work or writing or whatever, you know, obligation I'm meeting. Um, and I might engage with somebody over messages a little bit, but when I open up Signal and there's 50 messages that I've missed, you know, I, like, no, you know, I, I just need to preserve my working memory capacity, my executive function for the things that matter. And uh, Facebook is designed to, I could see how the algorithm was actually bringing in negative people to fight with me right around the time that I deactivated in mid 2019, um, you know, it really is there to suck everyone in and get them at each other's throats. And um, 
So, you know, there, sure, there can be a Luddite aspect, but I just think it's also genuinely toxic so much of the time. And in a way that, you know, it just, it, it's not that the internet prior was never toxic or anything. It's just that it wasn't designed to be so damn good at being toxic minute by minute, hour by hour, you know, just, um, and, and always trying to rope in attention. Well, that, that, that's the critical uh, issue with, uh, with the internet in a way. It, it, it's, uh, it's driving us all to be polarized and mad at each other and not talk about the issues, the real issues. It drives us to talk about cultural issues. It drives us away from being real. I mean, I, I don't remember Last time I went through an airport, which was a year ago, um, because of the because of the COVID, but I walked through the airport and almost every single person sitting waiting for their flight was on their device, and uh, it, it's it's creating this horrible polar <clears throat> you know polar polarized society, <clears throat> and, and and it's not gonna. I, I understand that it's not going to go away just because the technology uh, and, you know, the Zuckerbergs and those guys make huge amounts of money from our inattention to being real, you know? And uh, so it, it, it's, we're in a money environment we're a capitalist environment and the people who make money know how to make money and it's making money is, absolutely keeping people tuned in all the time. Um, hey, I, wanna, you know. I, I wanna transition th like that thought into bringing Jim into the conversation um, because Jim and I, we were at an event yesterday for totally different reasons, um, but it was, it was a, a community picnic um, for Native Americans. And I, I wanted to see if, it, if this had occurred to Jim, uh, it occurred to me after the fact, after it was all said and done, my mind kind of was reflecting and I realized all of those children were playing on the playground and playing, you know, running around outside. I didn't see a single kid on a device. Mm. And really? yeah, and like, it, you know, it's become so ubiquitous. People just throw a device in front of a kid's face so that they never have to experience yeah. a moment of boredom or never have to actually figure out how to entertain themselves or each other, or, you know, and, and it's like a lot of my, uh, my stepdaughter's peers are like that a lot and they don't quite understand why we're not like that. Like we don't have devices that are specifically theirs. Um, and anyways, that whole, that whole scene was devoid of the screen time and the kids were just, you know, on the jungle gym and going down the slide and it was just wonderful. So it was so kind of organic you know, organic kid play that at the time I barely noticed that it deviated from what I'm usually seeing. So Jim, did that occur to you when, when you were there too? Uh, no, I, I didn't even think about that at all. Actually. I, um, I just kind of enjoyed it. Maybe I, <laughs> I was thinking I was alive 30 years ago. Um, yeah, good point. There's, um, there's, um, I haven't had time to research it lately or recently, but I was recently in conversation with someone and they had told me about um, or they were speaking of an ancient Navajo um, kind of prophecy, I guess I would say, 
um, it was very prophetic that <clears throat> that um, and, and, and it's also kind of apocalyptic too in a way which you know I, I have a kind of a hard time with apocalyptic especially Christian apocalyptic theory right um, <clears throat> but this was I found this very interesting and, and, and as I said I, I haven't had time to research or, or, or do study on it but there is um, some kind of prophetic um, storytelling um, within Navajo, I believe it was Navajo, that, um, that when the web covers the world, the world will choke and, and cease to exist, or, or it will bring really, really bad things, right? Um, so there, a web would cover... And and what do we have? The, the World Wide Web, right? So I don't know. That was just, I just want to throw that out there. And if anyone has time to research that, I'm, I hope to a little bit more. And, and um, but that I think was um, very, very interesting. And we know that indigenous peoples, you know, they're like many peoples, you know, there have been prophets in many, many peoples and, and, and groups over time. Um, you know, we know that biblically from the Quran, the Bible. Um, and, and uh, you know, speaking to the black snake and, and, and that kind of thing. So I just, I just thought that was very curious. And I also want to say that, Ellie, what a great experience and what a great observation. How fun for all of those children just to be playing and not have a screen in front of their face. That's incredible. And that, I'm glad you noticed that. Thank you. That really sparks joy. And it was a lot of kids, too. It was adorable. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it was a whole lot of them. Um, and yeah. so it was just this really delightful brigade. Of, and then, like I said, like it wasn't until later, I was like, wait a minute, I didn't see any screens. <laughs> and, yeah. um, you know, maybe it just felt kind of old school in a nice way. In a, in a very, like you said, a very organic way of just healthy play. Hey, Jim, do you want to share your first experiences with the internet? Yeah, it was in the very early 90s. And I was at UND, and I had a und.nodac.edu address. And my cousin helped me get it. And he, he was at NDSU, and he said, go to the library. They have this big thing of computers. And they'll give you an internet um, address. And it was my name. And then that. And, and I was like, well, then what? And he said, well, write me a message. So I went into there and there was like nothing in the internet. You open it up and there's like almost no websites. It was like, <laughs> what is the point? And um, then I wrote him a message. And I sent it. And then like a week later, he wrote me back like two sentences. And it was very um, boring and pointless. And, I, and then I forgot to check it for like a year or two. <laughs> and nothing ever happened and and the next time i really started using it um i think i was living in holland in nijmegen and um my friend my dutch dutch friend um told me about hotmail I was like hey you gonna you get a hotmail address to write your family and um i just put in my name my last name and then at hotmail.com and i got it because nobody knew what hotmail was really at that time and then about five years later all of my family member hated, hated me because they tried to get my last name at hotmail and um it was already taken and they're like you took it so um yeah that was that was the beginning of it 
But back in the day, after that, we'd have to go to internet cafes and then you pay by the, by the minute. Um, so you get like a couple bucks for 30 minutes or an hour. And so we would write all of our messages to all the family and friends back in America and put them on our desktop and then plug in to the Wi-Fi for just a half an hour and shoot them all out really quick, copy and paste them into the, into the, um, you know, hotmail messages and shoot out like 20 at one time. So we'd really spend like 20 hours on the internet condensed into a half an hour of sending it, but it really wasn't in it. It was still just a message thing. If I wanted to look up how to fix my 1967 Mustang, there'd be nothing, you know? So the kids who grew up now are, um, that I was working with at some place at um, one of my last employment. It was amazing because these kids came in. I'm like, how do you do this? And they would, in two, two seconds, Google it. And they'd pull it up and they'd find it and they'd know how to do it all. And I was like, wow, you're just used to that. I would have to find books and start asking people. And, and they were so much faster at learning than I was because they were used to knowing that anything they wanted to know was on the internet already. Just totally different experience. <clears throat> yeah well thanks for that jim and, and the rest of the crew um i think the prompt i'm going to give you here to kind of put a a button on this conversation is uh do you believe technology is neutral as in it's just a tool and it can be used for good things bad things it's up to the individual's choice volition uh, environment perhaps um, or is certain technology inherently good or bad? I think that uh, it, it's like anything else. It's how you use it. It's not. It, it's not the uh, the technology or the money is not inherently bad. It's who's using it and how they're using it. I will say that I I know exactly when Facebook went off the rails, and that was when they let people with non.edu emails in. Uh, and, and that was when the old people started showing up. <laughs> I, I, I think I was on Facebook in September of 05. Uh, and I didn't know anything about it until I went to work for the Leadership Institute and found out that the other... Uh, the other field reps that were recruiting on campuses were using it to find people. Uh, the first like four weeks of that 10 week program, I was old school detective working, going down to the student <laughs> center and finding out who was running different clubs and who was involved. And, and then one of the other field reps said, well, just use, use Facebook. And you know, there's already groups there. You can find people no matter what. And so I started using it and, um, you know, that, that also led to the decline of, of MySpace, which was the anarchist uh, uh, version of, of uh, social media. And, and, but I think that people, there was enough anarchy on MySpace that uh, there was no, uh, there never would have been a cohesive movement on MySpace because it was all about everybody doing their own thing. There was no conformity there. And it was, the, you know, it, the joke is that it was designed so poorly that you you spent all your time figuring out how to use it. But uh, the it was less corporate, of course. So you know, they didn't have the resources to 
make algorithms and stuff like that. If they did, it was very, it was very uh, rare. And, you know, there, now there's the old, uh, there's the old funny saying, you know, Tom never uh, screwed us over like Zook and we, we all betrayed him. <laughs> and anybody on MySpace knows who Tom was. It's our first friend. Yeah. Ryan, I think this is one of those times where you can't answer the question like nested in your prompt without establishing some kind of philosophical priors or assumptions. Like, you know, you need to, I, I think one needs to articulate if one thinks that um, human survival uh, of, of as many as possible over a limited number of humans, but having perhaps a higher quality day-to-day -day emotional experience, but you have to say, which one do you care about more? Because if you just want to promote human survival and reproduction and lots of humans not dying young or whatever, then like all technological adaptation has actually been good. And if, but if you're like not so sure if like, you know, millions of people uh, facing food insecurity at any moment um, is really, but then there's lots of people who are like, who are doing well, you know, if you question that that's a really great model for human thriving, it, it really throws a wrench at things. I mean, the alternative of humans having, so, I mean, essentially technology all stems from prior advances. I mean, you can't separate the computer and the internet from the first tools used to like cut animal meat more effectively or you know stuff like that it, it, it's an iterate iterative process like that and like advances in math and and physics and you know all that like th that's all a cumulative human uh technological process that gave us what we have today and at every turn there were clear benefits but it radically changed what it was to be a human being and um so i think you need to establish you know what do you act what are you, what are your core values um and only then after an explicit acknowledgement of that can one really answer you know is technology good or bad because it's this just mega package of change to human social life that is so epic but i do you know, there are moments where I question if we're really better off now, even though there's so many of us who get to live. I, I just don't know. I can't answer your question because I have not personally settled upon the values I am confident I hold most dear when it comes to, you know, human life, human suffering, human thriving, et cetera. Well, yeah. Ellie, that, that's a good, that's a really good point because it, to me, um, the internet is just another iteration of how we can separate humans um, because the internet definitely puts in place um, a, a two-tier world, the world of connected and the world of unconnected. And the unconnected are the poor people that can't afford to have internet connections. The And so therefore they are the, in, in today's um, world, I, I'm not saying just the U.S., but U.S. specifically, uh, you're, you're no longer part of our growth, part of our world, because you're unconnected. You don't have the access to be able to do remote learning whenever you want to. You're never, you're never going to grow 
in our society unless you are connected. And that's what's so, so, I guess, devastating. And, and you know, I, I look at the United States, I remember, and again, I'm going to show my, I'm, I'm old, I'm uh, 70 years old, but I, I remember when Reagan came into office in 1970. And prior to that, if you wore a pair of pennies tennis shoes to school, you weren't, you were just fine. You were just one of many. You were like everyone else in your class. But around 1970, just all of a sudden, labels became everything. You had to wear guest jeans. You had to have Converse shoes. You had to uh, Nike. All of these brands and all of this commercialism just became so critical in how a kid could go to school. So the internet is just another level of that, another level of making people ashamed of who they are and what they are. Hey, and, Norton, wait, can you remind me where you were living at that time? Again, I forgot already. Yeah, I was in Seattle at that time. Okay, so like, okay, so this is also something you observed specifically in the Seattle community? In the Seattle community, yeah. I mean, yeah, okay. It just seemed like it's all over. Was it here too or not? Um, I think personally, I think that varies regionally, like the severity of that. But I'll tell you that I, me growing up in the D.C. area, that was a really big issue. But I don't think it's a big the same level of an issue everywhere, which I find interesting, too, because that has some kind of implications. But, yeah, like like conspicuous consumption of brand name clothing was a big deal where I grew up. And it honestly I, I'm like. I'm I'm burnt out on it. I'm like sickened by it. I'm I'm over it. Like it's very toxic. Yeah. There was there was a Bizman ad uh, for somebody giving away a Android phone because he, her son was mocked and bullied because he had an Android instead of an iPhone, and so she actually put that on Bizman. So this is how awful we've become as as a people we 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 are mocked because we don't have the right phone we were mocked because it's and, and it's it's a and i think it's a worldwide culture problem and it's driven <clears throat> mostly by the internet because it, it's turned people who are never been consumer oriented before into having to be consumer oriented and I, it, it, it's a terrible situation First off, part of that is the Apple cult, which is its own thing. And I've never joined the Apple cult. But um, what I remember about that status symbol thing growing up and, and you know, the, the, if you look at the history, that goes back to the hippies. When, they, when the hippies became the yuppies in the 80s, that's, that thing really took off. Um, but I remember specifically, in, in, I was in like the fourth grade in Cincinnati, uh, my parents could not afford Reebok pumps. So I got the knockoff LA gear pumps and that was being a second class uh, citizen back then. Uh, this was, oh. and, and, and you know, we were listening to MC Hammer, Too Legit to Quit, that era. Uh, I remember it well. Pa parachute pants and, and everything. Uh, but, you know, that, 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 uh, <clears throat> that thing, yeah, it definitely took off. I don't know if it existed before that. I mean, 
was, you know what, Dustin, you know what's funny is those sneakers were considered acceptable where I was from. They were like mid-tier. Yeah. That's kind of funny. They were specifically like, no go in your crew. And then, and my crew was like, yeah, it's okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that, that would have been, you know, 1992-ish when they first came out. 91, yeah. 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 And, and uh, you know, and that was in, but I, I was in Cincinnati then when I, when I, and I moved, our family moved back and forth several times to different places, Cincinnati, South Carolina, Denver, for different things my dad was doing for work, but we always came back here. And that the status symbol thing for kids wasn't really a thing when it came to clothing in North Dakota, but it definitely was when it came to video games. Mm. It was, um, you know, if you, you know, I, I didn't get an original Nintendo till very late and I never did have the Super Nintendo. We had the Sega Genesis. And in my group of friends, nobody else had the Sega. They all had the Super Nintendo and then the N Nintendo 64. And, and I had the Sega and the, the, the thing that you stuck on top, the 32X. Uh, and so that, that played out in, in that click very, very much so. Because if you didn't have the same thing, you couldn't share the games. So... You know, if, if people wanted to play Sonic, they came to my place, but I couldn't share games with everybody else until everybody else caught up to me on the computer game side of things. And I was the one that had the, the five disc set of Doom that everybody wanted on computers. So <laughs> Doom is awesome. Well, I, I want to thank everyone for bringing up these fallen brands of the past. I, Guess Jeans, love that one. I remember when Guess Jeans was a thing. Norton. And uh, I was uh, in uh, probably seven or eight then. And I was just, I remember looking at the TV going, guess jeans. And just look at this thing like, this is the weirdest kind of, why would you want to wear guest jeans? I, I guess it's important to know about me that I went through a phase where I refused to wear jeans for about eight years. And I wore nothing but sweatpants to grade school. Oh and my God. Back, that was genius. Frankly, that was one of the best things I ever did with my life was, was refusing jeans. Because jeans well, it's were funny that it's funny they let you wear sweatpants to school. Because when I was a kid, opposite child. <laughs> Wait, what? What is your beef with jeans? Like, I'll be they're honest, I'm kind of a jeans really. fan. Jeans now are stretchy. They're stretchy. They're comfortable. They're as comfortable as sweatpants. Okay, so it's just it, it, this was so it was a technological advance in jean yes. fabric fabric that made your life so much yep. better. Yep, yep. Jeans were very. It was like they were always starched. They were. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'd like to go back to the if I could for a moment is technology being a tool um, or advancement. Um, so, so just kind of interesting. I, I don't. I don't know if this makes sense or not, but. So I, I, I onboard new people into an organization that serves people with disability in their homes, right? So these are individuals that are engaging people in their homes and their goals, uh, in their community inclusion, um, their, their daily needs. Some folks have high levels of medical needs. Some folks have low levels of medical need. Um, and so when people come into my orientation for onboarding, um, one of the things that we do right away is set the, the status quo of please turn off your phone um, um, and, and or silence your phone so it's not vibrating. 
and um, and we will you know not engage our phones while we're in session, uh, while we're in training. And then you know we also have a social media policy um, and another policy where that you know when you're in the home when you're working when you're working with the participants those individuals that we serve um, you're not engaging Instagram Facebook you know even if your participant isn't fully engaging you or you know whatever's going on in the home if you have downtime you're not engaging those things so one of the things that I I challenge people. Um, when it comes to the phone and, you know, the, this, this device is amazing, isn't it? It's incredible. You have the world at your hand, right? You have everyone at your hand. You can't even remember anyone's phone number anymore because you don't have to put their phone number in, you know, on a pad like you used to have to. It's just there, right? It's in your phone. And so I, I, I challenge individuals that um, in orientation – is your phone a tool or is it an idol? Is it something that consumes you and distracts you from everything else that you need to do um, and participate in as far as your work or family or engagement? Um, so I just like to put that out there. I, I, I don't know if that That's makes sense. That's a great sense. question. Is yeah. it a tool or an idol? That is is a, great a tool or an idol question. because we, we, have, we have a tendency as humans um, you know, to <clears throat> create idols, even though we don't know where that we're doing it and, and, and to create, you know, people of, you know, the, what, what I call it, Ellie, um, uh, what did we call Trump? He was not, uh, he's an autocracy. Uh, he's an authoritarian leader. Authoritarian. Yes. I mean, we have, we have that tendency, right? So I, I challenge people, is your phone a tool, something that you use to achieve whatever you need to achieve, or does it, does it take you away from everything else in the world? Is it an idol? So I'll just put that out there. It's a fetish. Do, do you control a it? Fetish. <laughs> it's a, it's a Mr. Is, it, is that Dustin who said that a fetish? Oh, no, no, that was Ryan. That was Ryan. That was Ryan, a fetish. I, well, I think for no, some no, people it goes beyond fetish. You no, know, it should be, it should be Ryan. It's like a Marxist term. So like Dustin's not going to throw it around. Yeah, Ryan's no, going to I made the Mr. Miyagi reference. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I like the term idol because I think it speaks to the truth. Right. It's an object you give control over to. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And you praise it and worship it. And, well, that's, and it that's becomes so a part of your life that you can't live without it. You can't ever put it down. Right. So and then that's what the, that's Marx's commodification yeah. principle. Um, so going, I, I guess, kind of tying all these threads together, I'll start with Ellie. Um, I, I think you're making the Steven Pinker argument, which is things are great. <laughs> what are you guys complaining about? And, oh, you know, no, I did not know. No, no, you, just, you weren't making it, but you're referencing it, which is sure you know, it is. It is the other side of the coin. Yeah. yeah you, you, if you measure it by like GDP and material abundance, we do live in a world of abundance. So back a uh, hundred years ago, there was a question uh, of, there was a question of scarcity. And so people were worried that um, entire populations would die. So there, that's why communism versus capitalism was a thing a uh, hundred years ago is that the communists thought, Hey, we got to share because there's limited resources. And the capitalists were like, no, we have to compete because there's limited resources. And so, after that uh, debate was settled, uh, we came into this post-scarcity um, commodity uh, reality 
where we have abundance of things. The Steven Pinkers of the world will point to that and be like, well, there's really, everything's great. Because um, if you look at the trajectory of history, we're getting more and more people out of poverty. Uh, there's material abundance. Uh, more people are connected to the internet. More people have electricity, heating, all this other stuff. And so that's a very rational argument to say that, uh, quit complaining, things are great. Uh, however, I think Ellie, you hit the nail on the head because it's a question of what is your um, ultimate value. Is it quantity or is it quality? So we've gotten really good at extending life. We haven't gotten so good about creating quality of life. So you can, um, and, I, and I've seen this with lots of older people in my family who have died um, very slowly, very slow deaths. And uh, it's troubling, it's troublesome. Um, and everyone around them knows that it sucks, but no one knows how to make it better. But you see this decline over multiple years, maybe a decade. Uh, and the person that's going through the decline knows it's happening, but they don't know how to fix it or reverse it. And they go to a nursing home and then they go to a, a different nursing home and then a different nursing home. And it just gets worse and worse, but it's so slow uh, that you're like, what are we even doing with, with uh, why do we live like this? So we've gotten, and that's what, <laughs> that's the technology can keep you alive almost indefinitely to a degree. And so we've gotten really good at that, but um, maintaining quality of life, not so good. Um, so that's the Steven Pinker argument because Steven Pinker is always saying everything's great because of all these rational um, markers and quantifications. Um, there is a degree of, I think, um, truth to that because there are certain things are great. The phone is great. It is a great fetish that we've uh, created. I, I think this gets to the, the, the you know, the old, uh, at least they died doing what they loved. You know, I, you know car guys kind of envy the 88-year-old the guy that kept racing and, you know, got into a crash going 190 miles an hour and that was it. And, you know. <laughs> didn't have to worry about all the, the mess in the nursing home. Right. He lived his life and he went out and it, it, the way he wanted to. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's, and if, if, you know, when I talked to my dad, he's like, never put me in a nursing home. And I'm like, well, we'll try, you know, what, what am I going to do? We, we, it's a, it's a decision with a, you know, it's not, I'm not the decision maker, but you know, I don't think anyone wants to live in a nursing home, but it's, it's where most people go at the end and it's a terrible way to die. But that's, that's the system we have now that, that extends life indefinitely. I don't know that I agree with that completely. Um, you know, I, I guess for myself, I've worked in nursing homes. I, I'm someone who's provided care as a DSP, a direct support professional, a PCA, a home health aide, a CNA. Um, you know, there are people that, 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 occupy skilled care who are thankful to be there um, because there's no one else that would really take care of them like the people that are taking care of them. And also they believe that they don't want to burden their family. And, you know, in working in nursing home, I'll be honest with you, that's where I first learned the lesson of it is a great privilege to live until you're ready to die. Um, and, and, and so for some people, it's probably very scary but I'll tell you what, when it comes down to it, I would rather move into an assisted living community or a skilled care community than burden my son to have to wipe my ass. You know, I, I, I'm just going to say that real, real blank, uh, real point, because I have I have. Thank you. I, I, I have, I'm on your wavelength. I have I have I have I have wiped more ass. I have washed more bodies. I have prepared dead bodies for family to come visit. 
I have been there with people holding them while they're dying um, in, in their end of life. So in that, that thin veil, that thin veil between here and there, wherever there is. And so, you know, I, 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 I kind of, kind of, and I know my mom too, Ryan, I, I get it. My mom says she doesn't want to go there or do that. And I promised her I will do everything I can to, to take care of you at home as long as I can, but I can't promise you that. I don't know what and your life is going to look like. It's also economics. Like, I, I, you know, oh. honestly, people need to work. And so without respite care. Absolutely. How am I going to do that? You know? Yeah. Like, I mean, it's just, it's guys, there's probably going to be a point in several years where I just kind of drop off. That's just where my life is at in terms of my caretaker responsibilities. So I'll like Ellie Shockley maybe disappear for five years and then come back publicly again when I actually have time because I might literally be providing round the clock care right. in several years. I don't know, but that's, that's the trajectory I'm on and I'm trying to come to grips with that and what that means. And I, I think there is a point at which um, residential care or like, you know, a nursing home or something is appropriate because there are people who literally become violent as, you know, if they have cognitive decline, and exactly. there's, there's, just, also there's, there's a lot of crazy stuff. Yep. yep, yep. Right, well, I, well, I think you guys kind of anticipated where I was going with that, which is the economics drive the decision. So it's cheaper to put them in a home than to keep them with you because you got to keep working because if you can't keep working, then you're going to you know, not have a home. And so we're, we're, we're compelled to uh, put our loved ones somewhere else because we um, don't have the ability to stop working. And I, and, and I think it goes to the framing, Ryan, it goes to the framing, like you're, I, I hear you saying putting them in a home or that kind of thing. But, you know, I look at it as like, I guess if I were advocating for myself, if I were in a place of need, say, for instance, I had a TBI right now or a traumatic or a stroke or something like that. What resources do I need to be cared for in a way that doesn't burden my family um, so that they're not economically impacted? but I can still thrive and live in a way that they can still have access to me. Well, yeah. traditionally it was your family that did all that for you. That's right. That's, that right. was part of the, the, your community, you know, not only your family, but friends. But sometimes that leads to abuse and neglect as well. Yeah, there, there are bad parts about it, but so we've extended life. We've created um, a way to pay for it. And then they, people go there so that other people can stay and keep working. And, uh, you know, there, there is no good solution to the end of life other than we, are, we kind of needlessly extend it, in my, in my point of view, um, without an idea of what's quality versus quantity uh, and, and make those hard decisions about, and talk to people about, you know, how they want to, how do they want to die? Do you want to die this way or that way? And it's hard because we, we don't talk about death in our society. So it's a hard conversation to start. And Not for me. <laughs> right. but, but that but I, I I agree with you, Ryan. I completely agree with you. It's just like the, the, the discussion about, you know, cancer and how in the old days people didn't live old enough to get cancer in large numbers, you know, and unless you were predisposed to get it early, you know, you either got it when you were 75 or you didn't get it at all. And uh, you know, the, but with all this said, those are the, those are the positives of why it, it, it's necessary. And obviously it's all necessary because people just didn't live long enough to need these things in the past, but the negatives 
of nursing homes where where people don't want to go there is because they've seen somebody who was uh, sedated and because they were causing trouble. And like my grandpa was a stubborn old Ukrainian and he he was rebuilding engines and and stuff until he was 92. I was helping him swap motors in his little Hondas. When he was 92 years old, he got in a car crash when he was 94, stuck in a home because he broke his hip. Uh, and and he was just a, a obstinate, angry, grumpy old guy because he didn't have anything to do. The, the mechanical work kept his mind going. And once he went in the home, he was only there for three years. You know, it, and, and they doped him up because they didn't want to deal with him. And that's the kind of stuff that that people are angry about when it comes to nursing homes is is the that the best way to deal with someone is to make them so that they're sleeping chemical they restraint mind anymore because yeah, chemical restraint. Either, you, you, either you lose your own mind because of your own dementia or alzheimer's coming into play or you are it's forced on you because that's the easiest way to deal with you so yeah it, it's so you uh, haven't experienced that dustin I, I watched my mom um, in a nursing home and we were the caretakers and I agree with you, Ellie. I agree with what you're saying that you don't want to put this onus on your family. You want to make sure that what they're forced into is not guilt and it's love. And if you love them, you will go into a nursing home. You will allow them to put you into a nursing home so they can live their lives. Um, but anyway, it, it's uh, what, what, what's horrible about this is like you're saying, uh, Richard, you're, you're going through as a caretaker in a nursing home, you're probably doing some of the things that I and would would never consider doing and what you're doing is such a high level of care that, that that people just don't even have any appreciation for and yet you're getting so a, a ball player gets paid millions for playing a game and a nursing home attendant gets three, four to seven dollars an hour for doing some of the most hard work that you could ever imagine you're watching people die in your hands you're watching people uh, where you have to turn them over be so they don't get bed sores. You're, you're, you're doing some of the most hard and really traumatic work, and you're getting seven to eight dollars an hour. And well, that, that, it, that's that's changed a lot, actually. Is um, it a CNA? A, a CNA in North Dakota right now uh, makes no less than fifteen dollars an hour. Oh, okay. so that is changing, but but the thing of it is, is it's very hard on the body, and it's very hard on the psyche. Yeah, that's what I mean. It, it, it's such a, it's such an incredible job. I, I, you know, when I go visit my my mom, and these people would be working with her, and she was up there. I mean, she was, she was nasty. She didn't like anything about it she would be like calling them every day to she was a bitch and uh so it, it I, I i can't help but these poor people that had to deal with her 
I mean, I had to deal with her as a, as a, as a son, but he, she was a hard-nosed German, you know, and uh, she didn't want to be in a nursing home, and she couldn't see very well. So everything was just a bitch for her. Her quality of life, actually, like, you know, you, you have to look at quality of life. She was done living when she went into the nursing home because she couldn't do any of the things that made her life quality. So she was constantly angry. Now, is that a quality of life? Is that something you want to live for six, seven years as being constantly angry, you know, so... Yeah, that sounds t terrible and awful. Um, and I, you know, I, when my grandma was in the same situation, um, you know, there was like three weeks where she uh, she had an infection, and we didn't want to treat it because the the antibiotics were going to screw up something, some other thing. And so um, she basically starved to death for the last three weeks. Um, she refused to eat and just died. And uh, it would have been awesome if we could have just assisted her death. <laughs> Uh, because at that point she's refusing to eat and and everything is going declining but we had to wait we had to wait for three weeks uh, you know and she was moaning in excruciating pain no matter how much medicine they gave her. that's a whole nother conversation ryan about assisting in death and that's right. a conversation that i think would be great to be had but norton know this norton know this there were probably staff and that she may have been as cantankerous as all get out but i make no mistake that there were probably staff there that she made laugh and that they made her laugh. You know, you weren't there with her every moment because you couldn't be. That's just the way it was. But my experience has been that, you know, even the most cantankerous of individuals, there were times that they were grateful for the support that they were receiving, for someone being there I and mean, just helping them and being there in a part of their life. And, and there were days that we laughed and cried and, and, you know, all of that kind of thing. So don't think that those years were a complete waste for her, please. No, I'm, I, I, I didn't mean that. I just was saying that it's, it's, a, it's, it's a hard thing. It is. It is. It is. And the people that, people that work there deserve our eternal respect and, you know, that they are putting themselves out like they are, you know. So, you know, it, it, at the end, when my grandpa was in the home and I was taken, he loved juicy fruit gum and he loved <laughs> that was my grandma's favorite. Yeah. Uh, when he stopped, when he stopped chewing the juicy fruit gum and stopped arguing when I came in, it was about three or four weeks later that he was gone. When he stopped arguing was when he had given up. Mm hmm. Yeah. When, when mom was more passive, that's when, you know. Mm -hmm. And, and that is part of the transition. Um, they, when we all get to actually, and we don't know that yet because we're too young to understand it, but that is someplace hopefully that we all get to come to that place to be ready to go. And, and, and that's, that is a great. I, I tell myself that I'll make it. I tell myself, look, when it comes, you're going to be ready. So chill out. <laughs> that's my that's my mortality coping skills of today. But in the meantime, you have so much to contribute and there's too much for you to do. So you're going to just keep thriving. We're going to make you stay here. 
Well, I, I, we're getting close. We're, we're past the hour. I want to thank everyone for sharing their stories today. It's been a very interesting conversation. Um, I, I want to go back to the idea in the closing here as we check out. Uh, two interesting ideas came out at the at the end there. Um, one would be the um, pain, um, the pay and the, and the workforce that goes around end of life care. Um, we have a shortage in North Dakota. We um, have a governor who's who, who sees a shortage across the economy and workers, and uh, is blaming the uh, federal unemployment, and so cut it off. Said uh, people are, aren't coming back to work because uh, the unemployment's too good, so we're gonna cut it off. And um, to me, I think that's one way to look at it. The other way to look at it is maybe they are, should be paid more. <laughs> maybe they would come back if, they, if they're getting the right wage. Um, we have a, a right to work in the state, which means you have a right to be fired for no reason, but um, you, you, you don't have a right not to work right now. We've talked a lot about kind of being compelled to work um, when maybe you'd rather do something else or you feel like uh, you should be somewhere else in a different um, stage of your life. So I'd like to hear, um, I guess, uh, especially from Dustin, what he thinks about the governor's action on, on that particular point, because it wasn't just our governor. Several other go governors have made the same call. And then um, going back to technology is neutral. Um, I think for certain people, technology is neutral. If you're um, on top of the hierarchy and you're well-educated and privileged, you have a lot of choices in front of you and you're able to freely make those choices. However, if you're on the bottom of the hierarchy and not privileged and in a certain part of the world, um, you don't, you, your, your actual free will has been removed from the equation, and especially the technology of Facebook and the other um, computer technologies. What they're doing is they're taking away free will. And so um, while I think you could make the technical argument that yes, um, technology is neutral, it's the person's choice. However, I think actually technology exists that takes away your free will. And so in that point of um, things, I think technology is no longer neutral. And this is where I would uh, differ with Noam Chomsky. So I was reading, I'm re reading this book called Demanding Demand the Impossible, A History of Anarchist and Libertarian Thought. And uh, Noam, Noam Chomsky came up in the very end because it was written, this book was written in, uh, in the late 80s, early 90s. And uh, one of his, and he's a, a classical enlightenment thinker, but also an anarchist. And so he thinks technology is neutral and that you know, there's a rational progression to, to uh, to history and you can make a good use of a tool or a bad use of a tool, but it's a tool and it's your choice. I think we're getting to the point, especially with AI and, and social media that um, the technology itself is not no longer neutral. And we need to think about whether we, I guess, I don't even know what we, <laughs> we have to think about it. Cause I, I don't want to say we should stop um, evolving and um, stop technology from coming to market and being out there. But we need to have the conversation, at least the vocabulary to talk about um, this stuff in a different way, because it's becoming to the point where I think technology is no longer neutral. But with that, I'm gonna open it up for some checkout thoughts and um, we'd like to go next. Well, on, on the unemployment benefits issue, um, I, I'm a contrarian on the current Republican thinking Primarily because, number one, I did take the unemployment till the beginning of the legislative session, primarily based on uh, my, you know, because there was no 
no market uh, last year for the Uber and Lyft drivers. I wasn't raising money for political stuff last year other than for our, our measure or countering the measure. And that wasn't that much because even the rich people that I know that, that uh, can typically cut checks, uh, they weren't last year. So I, I just, you know, considered it as a, a rebate of all the tax that I've already paid in. And, uh, you know, uh, it, it, because my, my measurement of where the economy is, at least until this week, uh, is based on the couple days here and there that I've gone out and, and, and turned on the Uber and Lyft apps to see what kind of business there was. And yes, there's been a lack of drivers, which has been reported, but there was no riders. There was no demand. And the specifically under the, the federal uh, PUA system for, for self-employed gig workers, that was there because those folks were relying on uh, the, the demand. And when there was no bars, no restaurants open and all that, and people were staying home, uh, the government had taken away those drivers' ability to earn a living. Now, I would argue that the moral hazard of the government being in control of and having the power to shut down the economy in the first place is a problem. Uh, obviously, if we don't figure out a way to deal with these things uh, that does not involve shutting down the entire system, uh, we will have learned nothing. Uh, I, I think that if we go through this again, it is going to completely crashed the system. Like everybody thought in March that the system was gonna crash, Congress spent all this money. But at some point, these government actions and, and this, these power grabs are going to happen at a time when interest rates aren't zero. Like I, I think we're heading towards hyperinflation, double digits, 12% in the next you know 16 months or so. Uh, we're gonna be in, in an economic arena that was reminiscent of, say, 1978 to 1982, that's where I think we're headed because there's been so much spending on the congressional side, on the fiscal side, and then also so much uh, uh, action from the Federal Reserve on the monetary side. And so we've created the, you know, there's always been this house of cards, but we've, we've stacked We've put way too much weight on top of the house of cards right now. And if this happens again, I don't know that it's going to make it through it. And if it does, uh, the, the, the cost to the regular person is going to be so high. And so, you know, we need to have a legitimate discussion that is not a partisan discussion that is not, oh, you just hate the government. No, the, we, we need to decide if the government should have the power to shut down the economy or not. And if it does, then there has to be a determined, predetermined UBI style compensation system where we are paying everybody to not go work and not do things, or the government shouldn't have the power in the first place. And we, we've got to make that decision and, and go one way or the other. And if we go and if, if we let government have the power, then Taking the money should not be seen as being lazy. It's not. It's the, the, our elected officials broke the system and it's a you broke it, you bought it situation. Uh, you know, all these 
Republicans now that they're in the minority in Congress, they've all of a sudden rediscovered their fiscal conservatism. You know, they complain about, oh, well, Biden, you know, spent $2 billion here and wants another $2 billion there or $2 trillion here and there. And, you know, that's not even close to what was spent under Trump before the pandemic, you know? And so uh, there, there's so much hypocrisy and so much doublespeak that, uh, you know, it, we really are in Orwellian times. And, and so then that leads into your, your issue of technology and whether our technological future is actually going to replicate what science fiction predicted. All of our technology now is based on fulfilling the dreams of science fiction in the last hundred years, right? You know, whether it's, uh, you know, communications, I mean, they're, they're working on the holographic stuff. Uh, you got AI, everything is trying to make Star Trek a reality, essentially. And uh, if that's the case, then we've got these other issues that we've got to figure out. And, and, as a society, we're skipping a lot of steps and ignoring a lot of things in that progression uh, in the name of progress. And, and progress for progress's sake doesn't necessarily uh, result in good things. Well, Dustin, I would say um, we're, we're fulfilling the science fiction to a degree because we, we don't have flying cars. Yes. But what, 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 we are, what the innovation is, is, is the innovation of simulation virtual reality, mm -hmm. artificial intelligence. And what happens as we simulate something, it becomes a commodity we can put into the economy and we can continue to grow the economy. So the simulation of something creates a new op market opportunity. So it fulfills the infinite growth of, of capitalism. But what it's not doing is there's no flying cars. We're not going to Mars yet. Elon Musk, please get us to <laughs> Mars. So again, um, I, what does progress for progress sake? Where are we going? What's the point um, to be determined? I like your idea about um, universal basic income. If the government has the power to shut down the economy, yes, then that makes sense. I think they do. That's the point of having a state <laughs> is uh, the, the power part. Uh, so yeah, they do. So where is the universal basic income? I'll stop there. I wanna get to the rest of the crew here. Um, what are our checkout thoughts? I, I've just got a quick, uh comment, um, Dustin, I, I, I agree with you uh, so much about the shutdown and what, but what you said, what was ultimately flawed about your conversation was you're looking for a nonpartisan discussion about this. And that's impossible in, 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 in this age, in this time, because you have people that are fundamentally saying, there is no global warming. There is no environmental issues. There is no poverty. You know, and there is no people who are poor. They're poor because they want to be poor. Um, and it, it's, uh, you know, it, it's just a, a completely no discussion about the reality of our situation. Nor, that's like Norton, that seems like a little bit of a straw man, because I don't think Dustin's saying it's easy. You know, I I don't think I, did, I didn't that, say it was easy. I just well, said that. I mean, you're saying it, you're saying it's impossible, but I don't think that he was saying and it will be perfect. You know, I don't think there's that perfectionism behind his goal. I I you know it makes me think of when we had that 
can partisan discussion um, about money and politics. Namely, we focused on Burgum's PAC. And it was a discussion that, you know, wasn't like 100% post-partisan. I mean, that's really elusive, but it really was like people of different parties agreeing to kind of sort of being gaslit. It was somewhat like it was a move in the right direction <laughs> to be like, oh, there's an Orwellian use of words in this situation that is literally inaccurate and sometimes quite the opposite. And we talked about the influence of money in politics actually leading to like Orwellian mailers and stuff. And I think it's about moving more in that direction. But you know, just it's it's it is challenging, but I don't know that saying that it's impossible is helpful because I don't think that like basically no one's saying it's going to be perfect. And sure, perfection is unattainable, but can we move the needle in the right direction? I think we can at least somewhat, and we have to. There is no other choice. So when there's no other choice, I don't know how much help it really is to tell someone it can't be done. You, you know, the the money and politics thing is is interesting because I I think that we're about five years from Republicans flipping on Citizens United, and that is because of the tech thing that their desire to trust bust the Facebook, Google, all the tech Twitter stuff because they believe that they are imposing uh, a violation of free speech on them. Well, if you don't like those tech companies uh, doing that, if you don't like companies in general getting into the ESG situation where they are influencing the stock market based on environmental issues, the only solution is to depersonhood corporations and make it so that corporations don't have political power and at the same time, depersonize uh, unions at the same time. I mean, the, the, the Citizens United not only protects the corporations, but the unions. So if you take the political power of both entities away, uh, you, you remove 80% of the money in politics, easily 80%. So uh, if, if Republicans are truly dedicated to bringing down these nasty, evil corporations who are against them, their only solution is to reject the very policies that they've pushed and kept in place for the last 20 years. And that's how you will, that's how you will know whether a Republican is genuine on their dislike for Twitter and Facebook is if they are willing to overturn the corporate power structure when it comes to politics or not, or whether they just want to pick and choose winners and losers. Well, that gives me great hope that here in North Dakota, we could um, try to overturn Citizens United or even just try to get money out of politics. That would be, um, you know, if we have this much of a conservative base, heck, let's collaborate on that. I'll dedicate a couple of years of my life to that. I, I think that, you know, like we were talking about with all the coal stuff, I mean, I think we could come up with a message. That, that caters to the people who wanted to divest North Dakota from the ESG funds and say, okay, well, if you want to do that, then the first thing is to make it so that those corporate entities don't have power over 
the, the political structure in the first place. That's the first step to di divesting because you can't just you know, eliminate the profit, the stock market side of it, and then not the influence side of it. You know, that, that's, that's wanting it both ways. And so calling out some of these people on their claims and, and calling out the, the hypocrisy is, is going to be key. And, and I think that there, there is a certain, uh, there's a certain tone and, and people are finally realizing that big government and big corporations are, are the same thing which is something Ron Paul always said for, you know, 30 years. Uh, and that if you don't want government to get too big, you can't let the big corporations control it. Or the big unions for that matter. Just eliminate the, the, the large influence and make it so that everybody's on the same playing field. Well, I'm all about taking money out of government um, <clears throat> and also intentionally putting people, BIPOC people into uh, and, and increasing their presence in government. Um, and I, I, I am too worried about inflation, I guess. I, I, I think that's kind of um, something that I'm, I'm glad my son bought his house now. <laughs> at such a low interest rate because I fear that, you know, in the next five years that we're going to be back at like 11 or 12% interest rates and what that's going to look like. And a loaf of bread will be $10 and a dozen eggs will be $5. And, you know, so that, that, that's kind of fearful. I, I, I look at that as well um, and, and think about that. Um, I, I don't know where we're going to go economically like that. I think that the current administration is making strides in a great way. Um, in some ways, I, I believe that we should be in, investing in infrastructure. Um, this is always a pleasant conversation. Ellie Shockley, um, I'm, I'm binge watching uh, the, the Queen's, um, what is it called? The Queen's Quidditch or the Queen's, uh, it, it, it's a story of Gambit, the Queen's Gambit. Thank you. It's a story of um, Elizabeth Harmon and her, her rise to world chess champion in a male-dominated um, uh, world. So uh, I, I, I always appreciate you being here and you're one of the reasons that I come here. So thank you and for your recent support during a very uh, difficult time as well. Uh, so I'll thank you for that. Again, oh, a brilliant You're welcome and thank you. Yeah, just a brilliant conversation. And I just always appreciate what I learn here and what I discover. And I don't know if I bring anything, but if all that, it is what it is. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. And um, thanks to everyone else. Uh, thanks to Juicy Fruit. Ellie here. Sega Genesis. Sega Genesis. Sega Genesis was the be better gaming platform. It was. Way better. Was, <laughs> to those people that had the Super Nintendo. Better controller, too. Yeah, better controller, better experience, really. Yeah. They really missed out. Uh, this has been the No Name Podcast. You guys have a great rest of your Sunday. Thanks for tuning in.